Hello again, everybody. We are back at it with The Christian Family by Bob Vink, Chapter 6. And uh, these, well, there's a lot of really good stuff in here. Uh, kind of amazing, scary, really, how it connects almost precisely to the same issues we are facing today. Um, especially towards the latter half of the chapter. I mean, the first part, when he talks about the ascetic movement within the Christian church, um, maybe we're building up to something like that more in Protestant circles. I don't know. Um, there's a lot to say about that, too. But the second half in particular, uh, just dealing with uh, women's rights, women's rights and first wave feminism, which Bob Inc. was, I believe he wrote this in 1920 or so, 1917, somewhere in there, was having to deal with, was having to uh, address and respond to, and was one of the first ones uh, of the you know reformed faith dealing with first wave feminism. I mean, he, he's one of the first ones to do that because it was occurring uh, in his lifetime there. So this is going to be really, I think, something of a watershed recording here on this because we're going to really talk about a lot of stuff. I'm going to tie this in as well to some of the current controversies in our little tiny Presbyterian and Reformed circles, um, but they matter because they're the circles I'm in, uh, and um, I happen to think that we should be one of the last bastions of biblical fidelity. Uh, so if we can't hold the line, uh, there's not going to be too many who are, and uh, that's just even more frustrating and sad and depressing and um, unfaithfulness among God's people. But anyway, we're going to connect some of what Bobink's saying to some uh, uh, an article that I linked to just a second ago uh, on Facebook and to some of the controversies with some of the women in the OPC and PCA denominations like Amy Bird and Rachel Green Miller, uh, who are kind of recapitulating uh, in some aspects, certainly not all, but in some aspects, the first wave feminist cry and looking to these first wave feminists for some support, when in reality, these first wave feminists um, literally saw Satan as, as basically God and in the right in the garden when he deceived Eve, except they would not see it as a deception, but as a liberation for Eve to get out from under the patriarchy that the evil God of the Bible uh, imposed uh, and to get out from Adam's thumb. So Eve was brilliant and the greatest because she listened to that Saint Lucifer, Satan, um, completely turns the Bible on its head, blasphemous, wicked, evil. Um, and yet there is I have Rachel Green Miller, a copy of her book here in PDF, and um, she talks on, man, in the third of the way through her book about Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who's the lady who uh, was that first wave feminist and had the, the women's Bible who talked about, like I just said, Satan was this hero and, and God was evil. Um, and she says, Green Miller says of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, well, let me give a little bit of context, and then we'll jump into Bob Inc. Um, Green Miller says, Today most people agree that women's voting rights, legal pro protections, improved education, and better employment opportunities were useful goals. Speaking that this is what first-wave feminism fought for. 
but then she goes on trying to defend, really, first wave feminism in some respects. But today we associate other more controversial things with the feminist movement. For example, women's ordination. Yet ordination was a topic of disagreement even within the first wave feminist movement. Similarly, when Elizabeth Cady Stanton put together a group uh, of women scholars to write commentary on the Bible, uh, particularly as it related to women, the resulting women's Bible wasn't widely accepted by the first wave feminist movement. It was even condemned by the National American Women's uh, Women Woman, sorry, Women's Suffrage Association. Not many women sought ordination, and this wasn't one of early feminism's major goals. So, a couple things there. This was an international document, the Women's Bible, and it is quoted. And this is the article that I linked to in something called Quadrant.org. It's an Australian uh, website here. And this, the author of this particular article um, is Augusto Zimmerman. And he is, I believe, reviewing a book by a Dr. Per Faxneld, uh, a PhD in history of religions at Stockholm University. Uh, he's a professor of Stockholm University, was a visiting professor at Cambridge University in 2014. He's now a postdoctoral fellow at Mid-Sweden University. And he wrote a book uh, that is being discussed and, and looked at here uh, in this article. And it's called Women Under the Spell. If you Google Women Under the Spell uh, Quadrant, you can probably find it. Um, and the book is called Satanic Feminism based on Faxnell's doctoral dissertation, which was awarded the Donner Institute Prize for Eminent Research on Religion. It discusses how prominent feminists, between, primarily between 1880 and 1930, used Satan as a symbol of their rejection of the so-called patriarchal traits of Christianity. It shows that these women were inspired by the period's most influential new religion, uh, theosophy, uh, Theosophy, uh, I'm sure I'm butchering that uh, and probably should know better, but um, and how the anti-Christian discourses of radical secular secularism affected feminism. Um, and it goes on, Satan satanic feminism sheds a new light on the early feminist movement. It discusses neglected or unknown aspects of the intellectual connections of early feminism with Satanism in a way that nobody before Faxnailed has dared to do. In doing so, he richly illustrates how leading figures of the early feminist movement, such as the suffragette um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who I was talking about that Green Miller was supporting, the actress Sarah Bernhardt and the poet Renee Vivian, viewed God as the precursor of patriarchy and Satan as an ally in the fight against it. Uh, the feminist view of Satan as the liberator of women, according to Faxnailed, was intertwined with prominent anti-clerical, left-wing, and esoteric currents of its time. Examples in his book include feminists employing Lucifer as a symbol of revolution and eulogizing him as an anti-patriarchal figure. As Faxnailed points out, Satanism and feminist politics were interwoven from the first appearance of the theme of Satan as a benevolent revolutionary figure and the liberator of womankind. Um, so Satan is seen as an ally in the struggle against patriarchy supported by God the Father and his male priests, Eve's ingestion of the forbidden fruit becomes a heroic act of rebellion against the tyranny of God and Adam. Yeah, so Satan is a, is a powerful ally in the struggle against a tyrannical patriarchy supported by God the Father and his son. 
Now, why would you want to look to these ladies uh, who are summoning Satan to overthrow the patriarchy if you're a Christian? Um, why would you give any sort of credence to that? Again, Miller distances herself from uh, the, the, the women's Bible that Stanton had a team of, of women basically put together and produce and made Satan the hero and God the, the devil, basically. Um, but still, doing something that terrible, why, you know, why give um, some favorability to her and to that whole wave? While she's trying to downplay this women's Bible thing, saying it wasn't that big of a deal. Well, this article, you know, which this book that is being referenced came out, I believe, in 2017, called Satanic Feminism, features the women's Bible prominently. It was an international um, committee that came together to produce this thing. Now, I don't know enough of the history, I'll grant. Um, but I'm telling you, I'm looking at two different articles, which one from Quadrant here um, is saying this woman's Bible was a big deal. Uh, Green Miller is trying to embrace some aspects of first wave feminism, but not their Satanism. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, this is just the danger of what's going on uh, with the feminist movement, what's been going on. And, and why is all this matter for Bob Inc.'s chapter here? Bob Inc. is going to talk about some of this stuff, writing, you know, smack dab in the middle of that 1880 to 1930 uh, wave of feminism that was eroding the church. And you'll, you'll, you can see his frustration and snark even in the chapter towards these, these, these women. Um, and so if you want to look at, at Miller and Byrd and them uh, as allies to the Reformed faith, well, that means Bob Inc. and a whole host of others before him, you know, Calvin, everybody basically is being thrown, you know, in the dustbin, uh, particularly on this important issue of, you know, what is a man, what is a woman, what are uh, the husband's roles, the, the, the wife's roles, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, no small thing whatsoever. Uh, yeah, so the Women's Bible, this article from Quadrant goes on and says, is notor notorious for telling the history of how devil-worshipping witches were turned into champions of science and women's rights. Demon lovers were portrayed as allies in the struggle against patriarchal oppression and so on. In a letter to the editor of The Critic, after the publication of the, notor of the notorious book, Stanton notes the following implication of her deconstruction of Genesis 3. Take the snake, the fruit tree, and the woman from the tableau, and we have no, no fall, nor frowning judge, no inferno, no everlasting punishment, hence no need of a savior. And it just says that Stanton's undertaking was not unique. It was not unique in feminist circles, right? Like what she was doing was common. And so that is kind of at loggerheads, it's at odds with uh, what Green Miller, Rachel Green Miller is saying and uh, who's written a book, Beyond Authority and Submission, and is allies with Amy Byrd, and they're all supported by men and ministers in the OPC and other Reformed NAPARC denominations. Um, so to say that there's a satanic tinge to this, understood rightly, is, is for sure not a stretch at all. If, if it applies anywhere, it, it, it applies here. Um, so with that, wonderful backdrop into this. Let's let's begin looking at Bob Inc. Uh, let me see how much time I have first. Okay, plenty of time. Um, so 
Bavink begins talking about the ascetic movement within the Christian church. Um, he says, look, every generation has to fight against sin because we're all born sinners. So you can make advance. Uh, three or four generations in a row can be really faithful to God, but it just takes you know one skip in that to, to break the chain. And because we're born sinners, because we're born dead in trespasses and sins, um, it's not like if you become a Christian and are really holy, your child comes out a born-again, regenerate, holy child. Yes, they're part of the covenant and are holy, covenantally holy and all that, um, but they're not born, you know, a believer, uh, regenerate with uh, advanced sanctification points because of what the parent did. It's not like you can transmit sanctification through genetics or something like that. Um, and so Bob Inc. is saying, yeah, we got to fight against sin from generation to generation and from century to century. The struggle against sin must be continued and the spiritual and moral nurture must begin afresh with each person. We have to nurture our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. For that reason, Bavink continues, it is not enough to know and confess good principles. They must be developed and applied continuously day after day, moment by moment. Uh, you can't slack off. Um, or it could lead to, yeah, straying from the Word of God. And think about all the exhortations in Scripture to remember, to recall, to press on, to persevere. Why do we have preachers? Well, it's not really primary. It is to teach us doctrine, certainly, but it's even more fundamentally preaching is, you know, what, what is a unique characteristic of, of preaching? Yes, it's ordained by God. The minister is, is ordained and under the um, influence and power of the Holy Spirit. There's an unction upon the minister in his authoritative exhortation that when you hear him speaking, it is really as if God is speaking, he is speaking through that minister, that, that ordained man. And so it comes with such authority. But the authority isn't merely an academic lecture being delivered, but it, is, it ought to be uh, an exhortation, a passion, a pathos that is being impressed upon the listeners as the prophets in Scripture would do, as the apostles themselves, as Christ himself does, to convict. The Holy Spirit takes that to convict us, to stir up our hearts to serve the Lord. Not just to know him, but to actually love him, to love what we know about him, and to do it, to do his will. Um, and if we fail in that, then we will fall um, away. Uh, we will, the church in general, collectively, will be adrift uh, far from the anchor of God's word uh, and from the safeguards of the creeds and confessions and so on. And we're seeing that, sadly, today very much. The Christian church never erred, 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 yeah, however you want to say it, to the extent of condemning marriage and family life as such. But the church did go so far as to confess that abstaining from these earthly concerns was a shorter and safer path to heavenly salvation. Um, so he kind of echoes uh, uh, Chrysostom. Married life might be silver, according to the formulation of Chrysostom, but the unmarried state is golden. And so the ascetic movement, as far back, you know, even as the, some of the early church fathers and through the, you know, I think he says, especially in the 10th century onward, you know, really until the time of the Reformation, you know, asceticism and monks and, you know, nuns living this single separate, holy, supposedly spiritual, holy life, 
really overturn the natural order uh, well, of creation and uh, of God's word, um, where the norm is for the vast majority of people to be married, to be fruitful, to multiply, uh, fill the earth and subdue it. That was relegated to second tier status. And, you know, singleness was upheld as the best and easiest and most sanctified, you know, position. Um, and we'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, but I think I can leave it at that and probably move ahead quite a bit here without having to get into the weeds. Um, let's see. Yeah, Bobbing says, The church forgot the word of the Apostle Paul that it is better to marry than to burn, and that each has received his own gift from God, the one this gift and the other that gift. Uh, talking about 1 Corinthians 7, 1-9. through 9. And I think... I want to look at that because it's worth um, thinking about a little bit. You know, what what is, is there a gift of marriage versus a gift of singleness? How do we think through that? So 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9, this is New King James, says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, you know, not married and so on. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And then he goes on to say, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So, there's, there's so much that could be said on that. But certainly, if you have a desire that cannot be contained to be married, and yes, the desire here is especially looking into a sexual desire, you need to marry. Um, asceticism seems to think that not having that desire, or even if you have it to just not fulfill it, is what God wants. That's in direct contradiction to what Paul says here. And then they go further by trying to deduce from what Paul says here that it's better to not have this desire. And, and I, some may try to argue that, but biblically you, you cannot. From the total scope of all scripture and even from this passage itself, um, God created Adam and Eve with sexual desires as a pre-fall, God-given, good, rightly ordered thing. Now some, like one OPC minister I was listening to on a podcast, you know, who was basically saying in the Old Testament, you know, women weren't treated as equal. But in the New Testament, now they are because Christ has come. And, you know, men failed. Adam failed. Christ succeeded. Men cannot try to take on male headship and spiritual leadership in the home. He says that doesn't exist for the man. Man doesn't have spiritual leadership in the home. He straight up says that. And the implication seems to be it's because Christ has fulfilled that. So we're all brides now, <laughs> right? We're, you know, all men are brides 
therefore there is no spiritual authority in the home for men uh, because Christ is that now. Uh, you know, it's, uh, that's hardly even connecting the dots. It, it is connecting a few dots, but I, I do think that is for sure the gist of what he is, is getting at. Um, now, collectively, the body of Christ is the bride of Christ. But we talked about that in one of the earlier recordings here, that individually, you should not think of yourself as a bride of Christ. Um, as a man, I'm not a bride. But as part of the larger church body, collectively, we are a spiritual bride um, of, of Christ. That is, of course, true. Um, but you're getting all kind of category confusions by some, and it's leading to um, a, a doctrine, a theology, a teaching that basically wants to subvert and overthrow male authority and headship and give it only to Jesus Christ. Now, does Christ have authority as the God-man? Of course. But through whom is he still exercising that authority? Through male ministers, through husbands, and, and yes, over children, the women in the home too. But who are the women to submit to? Their husbands as their spiritual heads. And the husbands are to lead as Christ, uh, as, according to Ephesians and, and, of course, other places in Scripture. And that's not gone. You can't throw that away. But they seem to be trying to. Um, so, again, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Impossible if uh, 90 plus percent of us are celibate, or even 50 percent of us, or 60 percent of us, or something like that. Because we're not going to make the replacement rate the way we're going. Uh, the population is going to decrease. There's not going to be a multiplication. The norm has to be. It has to be still to be fruitful and multiply unless you don't believe that that command is still in place. And a lot of people don't even reform, supposedly reform folks say, yeah, the great, uh, the dominion mandate is gone. We have the great commission now, but the dominion mandate is, is sort of fell away or it was fulfilled in Christ and it's all spiritualized now. And it's just about salvation in heaven and whether you get married or not, whether uh, on earth, there's a lot of more people growing and subduing the earth for God's glory is, is at best secondary and, and indifferent or even completely irrelevant. And the ascetic movement seems to take it even further and say it's, it's almost positively um, sinful. And you're a weak person if you have to get married because you want to have sex um, and that, that comfort of a companion and, and, and so on and so forth. But that just overturns the whole natural order and scripture itself that God has established in, in creation uh, and in his word. So, um, Bobbitt goes on to talk about how this ethic arose, especially with Pope Gregory VII in service to the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. He says, if the church, Bobbitt is, is saying this, if the church was to remain independent from subservience to the laity, uh, to not be under the laity's thumb, so to speak, from the powers of the world and from domin uh, domination by the state, then before anything else, its spiritual class needed to be separated from women, from marriage, from the family, from offspring, and it must be dependent only on the church. In this way, the interest of the hierarchy pushed for the unmarried state, for the spiritual class, 
and undoubtedly enjoyed the benefits of that, but the yoke that this placed on the conscience of Roman Catholic priests was unspeakably heavy. And of course, you know, we know all the more now in the 20th and 21st centuries about uh, priests molesting and, and sexually violating little boys and, and, and girls and others. And uh, Bob Inc. alludes to that, even though he doesn't necessarily directly talk about that. Um, it's not true. Even in practice, when it's tried, as he goes on to say, your natural sexual impulse will find an unhealthy rather than a healthy expression. God says there's one healthy and righteous and good and glorious expression of your sexual passion and desire. And that is, you know, committed Christian monogamous marriage, one man and one woman. It's good. It's what I've ordained your sexual desires unto. And it is a wonderful gift from God to have those sexual desires so that you can be fruitful and multiply so that you can men lead your wives and wives be help me to your husbands and uh, fulfill that dominion mandate in intertwined with fulfilling the great commission. It all works together uh, and it's a great and glorious and, and good thing. And I would say it is the gold standard. Um, you know, is singleness the gold standard though for those who are, um, have, if you want to say the gift of singleness or who do not have really, at least to the same extent or any real strong sense, this sexual impulse and drive? Well, for them, yeah, not being married is the gold standard for them. Um, but it's not for anybody else. And, and we don't look at them and say, you are holier than all of us married people who have to just, you know, um, to be a little bit loose here, get our freak on, <laughs> right? Because that's, you know, the Christian marriage isn't fundamentally just about, you know, I can't contain my sexual passion, so I just turn it into... Um, you know, my wife into a, a sex object, and, and that's all that it is, right? That's, that's sex. The sexual union is at the heart of marriage, but it, it, it is at the heart of it because everything built around it, around it is uh, connected to it. it. It's a whole collective thing, right? Your children are like fruitful. Your wife is like a fruitful vine of children all around. Um, as Psalm, what is it, 127 talks about, uh, it, it's, it's at the heart of the whole marriage bond and union. Uh, it's that great intimacy you share with your spouse, but it, it, it's unto all the rest of the glories of marriage. The home, the household, the children, the family, building something, taking dominion for the name and glory of God and for Christ and his kingdom. Um, and so in that context, yes, sex is a beautiful and rich thing. Sex, even within marriage, divorced from the Christian context, can be not such a beautiful thing. I mean, I think there's relatively faithful unbelievers who are married and committed to one another, uh, a man and woman who love each other and, and their sexual intimacy is at some level an expression of that, but it's still robbing God of the glory uh, in that bond and that relationship. And so it's still sinful in the most, uh, in that deepest sense uh, and not being fruitful and multiplying and producing godly offspring as uh, God desires and intended. Um, now, going back to Bob Inc., he points out a um, something I kind of really never put together, even though it's obvious. Um, uh, he says this, The same idea led the Roman Catholic Church to elevate marriage to a sacrament. So, on one hand, yeah, here, I'll just quote him, it's easier. It appears to be a direct contradiction that on the one hand, marriage was forbidden for the spiritual class, and on the other hand, that marriage nonetheless bore the character of a means of grace. 
But both notions proceed from the same consideration. They are two branches growing on the same tree. Taken by itself and viewed strictly as a natural phenomenon, marriage is not much more than a fleshly communion unworthy of the Christian. But then you add the supernatural sprinkling on top that doesn't mix in, and it's sort of christened as a means of grace, and it could be good and it could be okay. But the real spiritual elite, you know, the priests and so on in the church, you know, you take the monks and others, they don't get married. They're really closer to God. Um, they run wild with 1 Corinthians 7 here and uh, what Paul is saying um, and make that the gold standard that only the elite priest can attain to when most of them themselves cannot. And when scripture in the New Testament makes clear that, you know, the husband is to be, uh, the, the, the man, the elder is to be the husband of one wife. Now, I don't necessarily think that means that you have to be married, but I do think it's very much preferred. And the whole he rules his household well, I think, is, is again, that's why marriage and even children are preferred for the minister, for the elder, so that he can show that he can lead his household well. I mean, that's not me just saying that. The Bible says that. Um, it might be in both Timothy and Titus where the qualifications for elders are listed, but I know it's in at least one of them. It says, for if the man cannot lead his own household well, how can he then lead the household of God, the church, right? So the family is of first importance, but also um, because it is of first importance, a training ground for the man, if he fails there, he's going to fail in the church as well. Because while I would say the family is most important, you know, your children are more important than your congregation pastor. But in a congregation, you might have 50, 60, 70, 100, 200, 300, 500 people. And they're not your flesh and blood. They're not your children. You don't have as much control over them. So they can become even more unwieldy. So the, the challenge of being a faithful shepherd um, in the church, in many ways, I do think is more difficult. But it is more important that you are a faithful father. Because that's the first qualification. You know, who cares if you're a popular, successful minister if your children hate you and are reprobates and you, you've not led them well, that you're disqualified. I mean, that's plain in the qualifications for eldership. And it also norms that you'd be married. If, if marriage was the exception or the lesser, uh, it wouldn't be a qualification listed for eldership and to rule your household well. And then to, to connect that to uh, the church and you're, you're ruling the household of God well. Um, anyway, Bavink says, and that is the, the idea of being expressed by Rome in its understanding of marriage as a sacrament, as it was instituted at creation and as it still currently exists outside the Roman Catholic Church. Marriage is nothing but a natural communion of husband and wife, but through his merits, Christ has perfected this earthly marriage and sanctified it and elevated it to be an instrument of his supernatural grace, just like baptism and the Eucharist. If marriage is lawfully entered before the altar by the priest in the presence of at least two witnesses in the same in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then the marriage partners share in a supernatural grace that equips them not only to live together in unity and love, but also to bring forth and nurture children to propagate the human race and the Church of Christ at the same time. Um, for the Roman Catholic Church, Marriage, its sacredness, the sacredness of marriage lies in this, that to natural marriage, 
which though not particularly sinful and impure, still belongs to a lower rank and bears a profane character, is added and bestowed a supernatural grace. The Christian element does not saturate the natural, but continues to hover above the natural. The natural is not renewed by grace, but only suppressed. Yeah, so the bridle is laid upon the desire that properly belongs to the flesh by nature, but the flesh itself is never renewed. The leaven is indeed sprinkled over the dough, but never kneaded within so that the dough becomes saturated with it. So the sexual desires, the physical desires that are satisfied and met um, for the Roman Catholic, those have to be killed still. So it's like try to successfully make love to your spouse without enjoying it, without having sexual satisfaction. I won't get any more explicit than that, uh, but you know it's impossible. And so it's a sick, twisted thing that turns the flesh and all physical bodily uh, desires, especially of that sexual sort, as unclean and wicked and dirty. And if you need these, you're a weak person. Well, no, if you, if you need these, you have a gift from God. If you need these, you need to find a way to have them gratified and met righteously. Um, you know, again, to say otherwise is to like accuse somebody of being a, a weak person for needing food to eat, which I guess some of the monks would try to go about food and drink too, uh, which shows you the absurdity of all this. Um, no, I, I think a healthy, robust view of sexuality and marriage is, is saying that men and women both need sex in their own ways and they complement one another, even, even sexually, in fulfilling one another's sexual and emotional and physical needs. God designed it that way. Adam saw it that way when he said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that entails in everything, including sexual satisfaction, and is a rightly oriented desire to pursue and to have gratified unto the Lord. Does our own sin and wickedness turn that into wicked things very quickly and easily? Of course. Um, but so does, you know, our appetite for food and, and drink. You know, you get drunkenness and gluttony. So it doesn't take away the, the goodness of food and drink and sex. And marriage, of course. Um, okay. When scholars argued whether the woman could be called a human being, now... <laughs> Uh, this is talking about uh, how certain Christian writers in times past have expressed themselves in former centuries with regard to marriage and women. When scholars argued whether the woman could be called a human being, then this was mainly a linguistic issue, whether the masculine word for man applied to the woman. But positing the question already betrayed a perspective of the woman as being less valuable than the man. Um, and this reappeared among the most extraordinary men in early and later centuries. The Jewish rabbi Mir, I think you'd say his name, recommended that a man offer three prayers of thanksgiving each day. The first, that God did not create him a Gentile. The second, that God did not create him a woman. And the third, that God did not create him a fool. In the same way, Christian men often considered themselves to be elevated high above women. Often among the church fathers, the counsel was given not to eat, drink, and speak with women, but to flee from a woman's path as from the gaze of a serpent. Men saw the woman to be primarily a temptress of the man, a snare into sin, a gateway of the devil, as Tertullian, Tertullian called her. And with all these accusations, men forgot to seek the guilt in their own weaknesses. The apex of this despising of women was reached in the famous book of two Dominican monks, appeared in 1487, 1487 under the title Hammer of the Witches, and it led to the burning of witches and so on and so forth. Um, and despite... Uh, despising the woman did not lead, Bobink says, 
however, as one could momentarily suppose to abstinence, but to abuse, right? Women were treated, reduced to animals, and so they were sexually abused as animals because men are wicked too and they'll take advantage of that. And I want to pause there and say, look, we have to say, if we're going to rightly, and we should, uh, uphold, you know, whatever you want to call it, biblical patriarchy, just, you know, what God teaches about marriage, man and woman, uh, husband and wife, our role in society and the church and the home, all these things. If you're going to uphold that and teach that, you cannot only teach one-sidedly uh, the wickedness of the woman and not the wickedness of the man. It is true that our godless secular culture and even in much of our churches are just browbeating men into effeminate, weak-willed um, guys who can't get over themselves for apologizing for having a sex impulse. <laughs> and, and that's ridiculous and wrong. And I think even decent Christian teaching, um, even teaching that I, you know, before I was married was still more prone to, would think, oh, maybe I really do need to try to be single, or maybe my desires really are of themselves, you know, not so good or something. Uh, even more conservative teaching, I think, sometimes can have a tinge of this still. Um, nevertheless, despite all of that, when you only speak one-sidedly in opposition to this, you can yourself overcorrect or give the impression to others who maybe are younger and listening and trying to grow into a biblical understanding where you give them a one-sided picture and they're going to be hyper-patriarchalist and maybe become some of these abusive men. So we have to speak with some degree of balance. It doesn't matter how imbalanced it is on the other side. We still have to, at times, say, look, men can and do abuse their authority they are the stronger sex. They do have the leadership in the home. When you put those two things together in an unregenerate sinful man who's trying to uh, gratify his sinful desires under, under the guise of Christianity and patriarchy of the Bible, that's a recipe for, yeah, rape, marital rape and abuse, uh, all kinds of manipulation and terrible things. But like any other sin, or I should say any other doctrine you could say that of, Right? Any other teaching. You can say the Trinity is very complex and someone could easily get tripped up on this, of course. Uh, the hypostatic union. You could say, um, oh man, I don't know. Uh, uh, the elder is to be blameless. Well, if you say blameless too much, some people might take that to mean sinless. And so, you know, what are we going to do then? Because that's going to be a distortion. Or you can go the other direction. Well, blameless doesn't mean sinless. If you push that too hard, then you can have elders, you know, cheating on their wives and it's okay. Any doctrine can be taken and, and distorted. It will be done that way. Satan is the father of lies. He's the master. He does this trick again and again and again. We opened this whole thing with um, satanic feminism in that article, right? This is what Satan does. He takes the truth. He, trip, he, he, he twists it. He manipulates it. He distorts it. He might sprinkle 10% falsehood into 90% of the truth, but make that 90% of the truth serve the end of that 10% falsehood and the whole thing becomes a lie and it slanders the truth in the process. It makes the truth look terrible while working to a wicked and pernicious end. And that is the devil's wicked, evil genius that he is. That, that is his genius to do that again and again and again and again. And we fall for it because we're sinners again and again and again. All right. Let's see. Uh, Bob Vink goes on, talks about 
Even in the French Revolution, the public women played a prominent role and marriage was robbed of its Christian and sacred character. Um, Rousseau uh, was its spiritual father uh, and as the preacher of an unbound re religion of feeling, he himself lived with concubines and abandoned his children. Um, yeah, it, when you overturn the order, it creates greater issues. When you think you're fixing the problem, you're only creating more substantial problems. Now, the next section is the sexual problem and attempted solutions. Bavink talks about prostitution. He's going to like rattle off issues and kind of take on the position or speak from the position of, well, really, unbelievers or Christians who are very much going the wrong way on these issues. Sort of a lib modern libertarianism. Well, prostitution has always existed, so let's just legalize it, you know, give them a, uh, a stamp of approval and um, make it, you know, rare, rare, legal and safe or whatever, like abortion, and maybe we can... Uh, manage it like that, which is wicked. Um, and he just talks about as we get, and I think he's talking about now at first wave feminism in 18th, 19th, uh, or 19th and early 20th centuries, our wealth and prosperity, he says, as well as poverty and misery, paved the path of disgrace, and that path is broad, and many there are who walk upon it. Um, our, our social situations today are such that they prevent many young men and women from getting married and induce them to seek the satisfaction of their needs in a sinful manner. Um, uh, the refinement of entertainment and pleasures that was advanced by the exaggerated value placed on material goods, all of which aroused among many people antipathy toward marriage and toward the burdens of a family. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like today, right? Where, you know, you're getting to a point where you know, greater wealth and ease and comforts are coming in in the early 20th century that Bavink's writing into. And uh, that's just increased all the more 100 years down the road now. And we have so much ease and liberty that, you know, pornography is, there's hardly a man who hasn't touched it in some shape or form, even Christian men. And it's a, a snare and enslavement. It's uh, a consuming... Uh, wicked outlet of sexual desire. Um, I think it's also what contributes to us men thinking that it's wrong for us to have these desires because it's so easy for us to gratify them in a wicked way. Uh, what's easier, firing up your computer, looking up a dirty website, or actually trying to get to know a woman and win her hand in marriage and build a family? Well, one's much easier, but it's a wicked counterfeit and a lie and is, yeah, it's not literally having sex with a prostitute, but it's virtually having sex with a prostitute. And it's, it's still carrying the act, the sinful, lustful act of the heart out, not in the actual physical thing with the woman, um, though there might be some self-touching, of course, uh, but there's, there's still an acting out of that. And so it's, it's worse than just lust in the heart. Uh, may not be full-on adultery, but it's still lust in the heart manifesting in an action. And, um, you know, free, open, you know, feminism being liberated, um, women in the workplace, the workforce, not at homes, in the protection of their homes, with their husbands and families and children primarily, but more out in the workforce as co-equals with men, basically 
becoming men in their working and laboring, coming alongside men, not as a helpmate anymore, but as a competitor, when they're not meant to be that, but to be a helpmeet, and a helpmeet in the full broad sense of that word, including sex, including, yeah, marriage and sex with the one you're married to, but even helping in the one calling that the husband has, but doing it in and from the home primarily. That is the calling uh, that the, the wife is given to help the man. And that's what the man needs a woman for. And that's what the wife ought to desire to be for her husband. And there should be some sort of, you know, help, helper uh, echo. I, you know, I think we should rightly argue of women in general to men and respect and uh, protection in general of men to women. Again, any first wave feminist, any of these egalitarian types hate that. They, they hate that concept. They hate that thought. You know, how dare you? You're not my husband. And even if you were, I probably wouldn't let him hold the door for me or whatever. You know, it's, 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 it's crazy. Um, but that's where we are as a nation. And what does that do? When women are in the workforce, they're away from their actual husbands, but around a bunch of other men and their bosses and are being more of a helpmate to their boss at work than they are their husbands at home and their children at home. Well, sexual infidelity, adultery, all this, of course, occurs because opposites attract, male and female attract. And if you spend enough time with a woman of the opposite sex who you're even remotely attracted to and who is remotely in the same age bracket of you, um, spend enough time there and you're playing with fire. It's just not what God has ordered in creation, in, in, in nature. It's not the way that it is supposed to be. And so it leads to all kinds of sins and, and, and snares. Many today have just, you know, swallowed that whole. They don't care. They're not Christians. And so free love and free sex, yeah, sounds good. But that leads to misery and suffering as well, of course. And it leads to rampant abortion and murdering of unwanted pregnancies because if I'm not married to that woman anyway. I never really wanted a child. I just wanted the sex and I was going to move on to the next woman I was going to sleep with. The woman's going to move on to the next man that she's going to hook up with. And I don't want the baby. I don't want this thing growing in my belly, so I'm going to kill it. Uh, it's awful, but that's where we are. There are some who expect, going back to Bob Inc., all help, or at least the most help, to come from regulating prostitution. Okay, we already talked about that. Um, and he gets a little snarky and sarcastic here, Bob Inc. does. Today, law lawmakers have determined the age and kinship requirements for marriage. Let them continue along this path by obligating everyone wanting to get married to undergo a medical test, and in some specific cases, even by prohibiting a particular marriage, thereby to further the salvaging and strengthening of the human race. And so he even talks about eugenics and you sort of kind of even get into like selective breeding to, you know, make a stronger human race. And of course, he's writing before Hitler's, you know, rise, uh, leading up to the Second World War uh, and trying to create a master race and all that. But I mean, he can see it coming. It's not far ahead for him. Um, Liberation must be the watchword. The state and the church must retreat entirely from this arena. No law, no rule, no bond, no impediment pertaining to marriage any longer. Let the entire business be left to human inclinations. Let them unite together freely according to passion and whimsy in love. And when that love's gone, you move on. And he says, children provide no obstacle to this ideal, for if no other arrangement is suitable, let them be taken care of by the state. 
eh, you know, that's what you do at public school basically now, and then aftercare and before care. And so the kid literally can be at school from 6 a.m. in the daggum morning to 6 p.m., you know, eight months out of the year or whatever. And then there's summer camps and all that. So mom and dad can try to keep the dignity of being saying their mom and dad and really they're offloading their kids so mom can go to work dad can go play sports or you know after he gets home from work do whatever he wants kick his feet up and drink a beer or whatever nobody's parenting except the state who's certainly satanic and godless at this point because they don't even, parents can't even be bothered a lot of times even christian parents to put their kids in christian schools or homeschool god forbid homeschooling most of them won't even shill out some money to put them in a christian school make that sacrifice but they get to call themselves parents and wish each other happy Father's Day and Mother's Day because, yeah, at least they didn't abort the kid and, you know, they deal with them from, you know, 6 to 9 o'clock at night when they go to bed. Yeah, I don't like it. It's terrible. And, yeah, I realize I'm condemning, shoot, friends and family that I know and saying that to some extent. And I'm not saying all of it is equally intentional, but it's the culture we're brought up in. So you need to wake up and say, oh, my goodness. I'm, I'm not parenting very much. I'm giving my children to the state, which you want to talk about a satanic influence there and the godlessness they're teaching your kids. You might as well hand them to Satan. Don't do it. Love your children. Sacrifice for them and you will find lasting joy. And in your old age, your children will love you and, and you will be blessed. Um, continuing on. Yeah, some say, well, the emancipation of the woman will, will, you know, take care of prostitution and take care of all, you know, ills in society right now. Um, she could never develop herself before, right? She was never free and independent according to her nature before. This, this explains supposedly why after centuries of, of oppression in various respects, she now lags behind the man in physical strength and intellectual capacity and in scientific prowess, right? On this evolutionary model, Darwinian model it's kind of like well the woman is physically weaker because she's always been suppressed by a patriarchal father ruling man male headship thing so she's less intellectually gifted she's less physically strong uh, because of this oppression set her free and she'll be as muscular and strong as a man she'll be as smart or smarter uh, she'll excel and she'll still be able to make babies how about that she'll be superwoman uh, Anyway, but all of that will change when the woman becomes completely independent of the man in and outside of marriage and when she is viewed and treated as an equal. Let every profession and job, every position and office be open to women. Remember, Bobbink is saying this over 100 years ago. People have opened for her not only the door of the classroom so she can teach and the corridors of the hospital so she can show mercy. Now, let them open for her the colleges and universities, the pulpits and the lecterns the judicial benches and the council chambers. Let her be given suffrage in the state, the church, and in various organizations. Then women will show what they can do. They themselves will provide for their own livelihood or be forced into the sin of prostitution. It's either or. Either let them do it all on their own and show you what they can do and what they're made of and what their true calling is, complete independence, or they're going to be forced into prostitution. Through their unique feminine virtues, they will provide a counterbalance to the coarseness and ambition of men. And in family, society, and state, they will demonstrate a reforming, salutary power. So, there's early feminism that Bob Inc. is having to, 
deal with. We're 100 years down the road, folks, and I'm cheering on the White House press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, because she's sticking it to the men like a man. And she's supposed to be a Christian. She had this big tribute to Ravi Zacharias, and I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful for her service, but I don't really think she should be serving in that capacity. I hear that she's a mother. Praise God for that. Wouldn't it be much greater and better, especially because she's, a, I think she's my age, 30, 31. She's in the prime of her childbearing years. She's going to get all kinds of pain and suffering and scrutiny from these godless and terrible, primarily men, uh, reporters. And um, why, why is not a man standing up there taking the, the heat here? Where, you know, why are the men all barracks, barracks, you know, and, and we have to have a Deborah step up here. Kind of like the same, like I talk with my wife about Candace Owens. I appreciate what she's doing. But this is not, it's because men have failed that women are having to fill in these gaps here. And it's just, it's just sad. It's just sad. It should call us to man up, men. Um, all right, we're almost done here. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, let me just read this paragraph. Finally, there are also those who cast the blame for all sin and misery on the lousy organization of society. And within that society, especially on capitalism and the unequal distribution of goods. Boy, does that sound familiar still, right? Socialism, socialism, Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, poverty is the cause of every malady or prostitution and drunkenness of robbery and murder. If society were organized differently, suddenly an end would come to all those miseries. Suppose society were organized in such a way that everyone would, re would enjoy rest and relaxation at the appropriate time, in such a way that everyone received from the public treasury an equal wage or a subsidy equal to their needs. Then the reason for all envy and hatred, for all sin and wickedness would disappear. It would just, you know, if we all had the same, you know, envy would vanish and we'd all sing kumbaya, right, with our loaf of bread that we uh, had to stand in line for. <laughs> Uh, people would live together like brothers and sisters. Complete equality um, would be the guarantor of a harmonious brotherhood. There was this discussion. I can't even remember all the context when I was teaching a couple of years ago. And uh, it became like a buzzword or a joke with the students. It was like, is this complete communism? You know, like, have we achieved complete communism? It was, it was some kind of like play or spoof or something we're doing. I don't know. Maybe one of my former students that hears this can remind me. But it was just like, you know. This has been going on for a long time. Bobby's having to address this here. Oh, if we could just have basically complete socialism, communism, then everything will be peachy keen. Everybody will be happy because sin is somehow in society, but not in the hearts of man. By man, I mean male and female, yo. Um, because uh, society is evil somehow. The structures are evil. Well, the society and structures are made from what? From people. So how does that solve the problem? It's kind of like those who look at Romans 9 and say, well, that doesn't teach election because it's talking about whole classes of people being elected, you know, Israelites versus Gentiles or, you know, whatever. Like, how does that fix the problem? You got even more people being elected by God and more people being rejected by God, just kicking it up from the individual up to the, you know, the nations or uh, from the individual to the societal level doesn't get avoid the fundamental building block problem of the individual wicked sinful heart and the fall of man and the need for Jesus Christ and him crucified to take away all of our sins 
to give us his righteousness and to give us his Holy Spirit by which we serve and obey and, and are brought back to the word of God and his law created in Christ Jesus for uh, good works that we would walk in them and do good. And what is the first good works that work that we can do? The household codes that you see in scripture of the family living together harmoniously, picturing Christ in the church, loving one another, serving one another in each their particular callings. The wife serving the husband under the husband's authority and headship, submitting to him, the children obeying the parents and the Lord for this is right. Uh, the fifth commandment, the first with promise that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Um, the blessings in the land, in society, that is reaffirmed in what, Ephesians 6, 4 or whatever, it's still true in the New Testament. It wouldn't be any other way anyways, even if it didn't say it explicitly, but it's right there in the New Testament text as well. This is good for what's good for the Christian is good for the unbeliever. It's a natural ordered thing for the families to be one man, one woman, uh, where the male is the head of his family and the wife is a faithful helpmeet and the children are obedient and learning from them how to be good, you know, mommies and daddies themselves. The family's strong, the community's strong, the city's strong, the state's strong, the nation's strong. That's the way it goes. And that's weaving together the Great Commission because you gotta be born again first to be strong as a family, as an individual within a family. And once you're that, grace restoring nature, that dominion mandate, you can do that again. You can be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it unto the glory of God for Christ and his kingdom. So the spiritual and the earthly, they shouldn't be divorced. They're always held together. The dominion mandate and the Great Commission, they're weaved and inter, inter, interwoven together, and we glorify God through that. So one more paragraph, and we are done, and I'm also coming to the end of my time here. But I think closes with this in chapter 6, and then we get to the really long chapters. In this way, there is no lack of proposed remedies for the maladies of modern society, but the remedies being proposed are for the most part just as damaging for marriage and family life as the maladies. There can be abuse of men and lazy men and no proper counterbalances to that. And women uh, can be uh, restricted of legitimate opportunities and certain things that they can have while still being homemakers. That's all true and well and good. Bobbing's recognizing that. As I said earlier, that we have to recognize both sides. But don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Um, as I saw one lady post rightly, very helpfully, don't throw out the daddy with the bathwater. Don't throw out the father. Don't throw out the patriarchy with the the scum water of sin that can collect on anything, right? There's never been a time when the family faced so severe a crisis as the time in which we are now living, so says Bavink, and I think it's just worse now. Many are not satisfied with remodeling. They want to tear things down to the foundation. It's the overthrow, and we've been living through that overthrow ever since, a century later. What are we gonna do about it? Well, next chapter, Bavink will talk some about that. Chapter seven, marriage and family. Reformation in terms of Christian principles. And so we need Reformation today even more, I would argue, than even in Bavink's day. And he's going to give us good guidance overall. And so we need to heed it and listen to it. And I hope you're excited to, to do that. If you stuck with me this far, keep going, because now we're going to get into where Bavink's saying, here's what we got to do as Christians, as Christians in the family, to glorify God, to rebuild society, to serve him faithfully in the home, in the family. Until next time, God bless.